All right, well, we are doing a series. We're calling it New Hope. We're looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus after Easter Day, and then also his continued work in the early church. And so I thought it would be helpful maybe to do a quick recap to catch us up, all the appearances of Jesus up to the passage where we, where we will be today. So, Easter morning, very, very early. Matthew says it's still dark, very dark. Uh, the guards are in front of the tomb. Now, these are probably not Roman guards. Uh, when the Jewish leaders went to Pilate to ask him for a guard over the tomb, Pilate said, you got your own soldiers. And so they do. They had, they had what were called the temple police. They would, they would maintain law and order in the temple. And so probably it's this Jewish temple police, uh, a, a dispatch of them in front of the tomb. And so very early, still dark in the morning, they awaken to see an angel coming down out of the sky. Uh, very terrifying. And he begins to open the tomb, begins to roll away the stone. And they freak out and they faint. They all pass out. And when they come to, the, 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 tomb, the, the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. And so they run back and eventually get to the Jewish leaders and explain what happened. And the Jewish leaders bribe them, give them some money to say that the disciples somehow stole the body. So, after that, both Mark and Matthew say about sunrise, a little before, right in that, just as the light of the sun is coming up, a group of women disciples head for the tomb, for Jesus' tomb. And they're doing this because uh, in this culture, you would anoint the body after somebody died. And they did a little bit of that on Friday night, but when the sun goes down on Friday night in Jewish culture, that's the beginning of the Sabbath. That's the beginning of Saturday. And so they couldn't do all the preparation that they needed to. And so they're returning with oil and and perfumes and whatnot to anoint the body. In in Jewish culture at this time, you would have a a cave that would be kind of the, the tomb, the burial area. And in the cave, you'd have a flat stone like a, like a bench, and they would lay the body on that bench, and they would wrap it kind of like a mummy, and it would be one big cloth going around the body and another cloth around the head, and they would anoint it with oil and whatnot, and then they would let it, it sounds bad, but they would just let it, de- you know, the, the, the flesh uh, deteriorate and disintegrate for a year. And after a year, they would go back, and they would get the bones, and they would put them in an urn, and then they would put them in one of, the, around the cave, there were these little kind of shelves, and they would put it on a shelf. And so, you know, a year later, it can be kind of gross, so you want to make sure that the body smells decent, and so you're putting all this stuff on it. So the women go very early, just as the sun is rising, they're heading to the grave. And on the way, um, Mark says that they begin to discuss among themselves who's going to open the tomb, who's going to roll away this big stone. It's heavy, Uh, they're all pretty small, petite women, they're not sure what they're going to do, and it's early, and so there's no other people around. There's no men, there's nobody that they can ask to help them out. And so they're discussing this, and they arrive, and when they get there, they look into the tomb, and the stone has been rolled away. And they can see, even from a distance, they can see into this tomb, and they can see that stone flat bench, and there's no body on it. And so Mary Magdalene, she reacts immediately and runs back to the disciples. She's convinced the body's been stolen, and she, she runs to tell the disciples that the body has been stolen. Well, the other women decide to go check it out, and so they cautiously approach the, the opening, and they look in, and they see two men on each side of this big stone, uh, big stone bench, and both men are wearing brilliantly bright white garments. And so later, they, the women are going to identify these men as angels, but initially they just call them young men. 
And they look at him and the young men say, why are you guys looking for the living among the dead? Jesus has risen. And he go tell his disciples he's going to meet them in Galilee. Well, the women are badly confused by this. This is not what they were expecting. They don't know what to think. And so they, they initially, instead of going to the disciples, they just kind of wander away confused and afraid. And, and we don't know if they went back to their own house or if they're just kind of walking around and they're confused and they're, they, they're just trying to process what, what they've heard. And finally, it begins to come together and Matthew says eventually, at, at some point, they, they get excited. They say, wow, if this is true, this is incredible. And so they begin to go through the, the disciples and as they go toward the disciples, Jesus appears to them. He says, I'm risen, go tell my brothers I'm going to meet them in Galilee. And so the women go. Well, in the meantime, Mary Magdalene has, has reached the disciples, and she tells them that Jesus' body has been stolen, that it's, it's disappeared, we don't know where it is. And so Peter and John return with her, they run back to the tomb. It says that, that John beat Peter, John was probably younger, more athletic, he beats him, but then he stops, Peter catches up, and then he goes on into the tomb, and he looks, and then John goes with him, and they don't see any angels. They just see this bench, and it says that they see the burial garments there, and they're folded up, and they're confused by this. I mean, who steals a body but first strips off all the burial garments and folds them nicely and puts them down? It's confusing to them. And so John says he thinks, he believes something supernatural has happened. Peter doesn't know what to think. He's just confused. And so they leave. Mary Magdalene, though, who's been running behind them, she stays there, and she's on her knees weeping and crying. And somebody says, woman, who are you looking for? And she thinks it's the gardener standing behind her. And so she says, sir, if you've stolen the body of Jesus, tell me where you put him. I'm going to go get him, please. And he says, Mary. And she knows that voice. And she turns around. And she says, Rabboni, which means my master, my rabbi. And she grabs onto his feet. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I've got places to go. But go tell my brothers. I'm going to meet him in Galilee. I'm coming. I've, I've risen from the dead. Well, she goes back to the disciples, and the other women have reached the disciples as well, but none of the disciples believe them. The, the, the disciples dismiss the women's testimony. Now, to be fair to these uh, men, they're not just a bunch of chauvinist pigs. They are, well, maybe they are, but most Jewish men back then were that way. Um, Women's testimony was not viewed very highly in this culture. Women were viewed as hysterical, very emotional. You can't trust them. When they get real emotional, they'll say anything. They'll, they'll, they're not logical. It's kind of, if you think of like Victorian English view of women, 18th, 19th century, it was kind of the same thing for Jews. They, women were not allowed to testify in courts because they're just, they're too hysterical. You never, they don't think clearly. And so the disciples dismiss these women. Oh, they're, they're grief-stricken. They're, they're, you know, they're freaking out because the body was stolen, whatever. They, they don't take them seriously. Well, that afternoon, two of the disciples, besides the 11 disciples, there were others who were there. Uh, one of them is named Cleopas, and the other one we don't know. These two guys, they journey to Emmaus, which is a little village about five miles from Jerusalem. And they're walking along the road, and another man is walking with them. At some point, joins along with them. And they're walking down this this path. And the two disciples are discussing what's been happening. And this other guy probably is wearing a cloak, probably has a hood. That was common back then. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, dude, are you, are you new? Like, you haven't been around? If you, you don't know Jesus of Nazareth? Like, he, he, does, he does miracles. We thought he was the one who was going to deliver Israel. We thought he was the one who's going to save Israel, the Messiah. He's going to save us from the Romans. That's what we thought. 
But then our leaders betrayed him, turned him over to the Romans, and he was crucified. But what's more is this, this morning, some of our women told us that, that his body disappeared and that he, he's risen, and we just were confused. And this man, Jesus, we know, kind of says, boy, you guys are dumb. And he doesn't say exactly that way, but kind of that way, just kind of like, ah, oh, man. So look, don't you, you guys are so slow to believe what is written in the scriptures about the Messiah, what the prophets said had to happen to him, how he had to suffer before he could enter his glory. And Jesus begins to explain from the scriptures to them why it had to happen this way, why the women aren't crazy to believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead. Finally, they get to, to Emmaus and, and the, the disciples invite this man to come in to the house with them, to have dinner with them. So he sits down to break the bread, removes his hood, and they realize it's Jesus. And then he disappears. Well, they don't hang out there. They, they book it back five miles back to Jerusalem as fast as they can. They get there. They, they get into this upper room where the disciples are, probably the same room where they had, had uh, the Lord's Supper. And they say, guys, you won't believe this, but we saw Jesus. And the other disciples say, we believe you because Peter had the same thing. Peter saw Jesus privately. And so as they're there and the door is locked because it says they've locked the door because of fear of the Jews, which means they're afraid of being crucified also, which is a natural fear. Uh, Romans did not like rebels. And so they did, not only, they, they did not only crucify the leaders of rebellions, they would crucify as many of their followers as they could. Uh, not only to, to squash the rebellion, but to set an example for anyone else who had any thoughts of possibly rebelling. And so Josephus writes that when the Jews rebelled in 70 AD, the roads leading to Jerusalem were lined with crosses the whole way in with people crucified on them. The same thing we hear in the slave rebellion in Rome. The, the roads leading into Rome were lined with crosses the whole way. Anybody associated with the rebellion was crucified. It didn't matter. And so the disciples have a very real fear that they are going to be identified, arrested, and crucified too. And so they're hiding, they're terrified, they've locked the doors, and in the midst of this, Jesus appears to them. And initially it says they're terrified of him, they're afraid, they think it's a ghost. Um, and Jesus says, guys, I'm not a ghost, right? Like, look, I, I got skin, I got bones, and, and they, he's like, touch me. And Luke says something really interesting, he says, he says, out of joy and amazement, they still did not believe. That's an interesting phrase. Basically, they're so overwhelmed, they're so, I, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where it seems like something is just still too good to be true. People call me all the time and tell me I've won a free cruise to somewhere. I'm like, nope, I haven't. Um, <laughs> the Nigerian prince has not left me a million dollars, nope. And so that's kind of where they're at, like, how is this possible? I see him, I'm touching him, but it's still too good to be true. And so Jesus says, do you guys got anything to eat? Right? And they give him a piece of fish and he eats it. And so finally they're kind of like, okay, I guess ghosts don't eat food. And he talks to them and then he disappears again. Well, a week later, the next Sunday, it's been the, the Passover is for a whole week. Remember the Passover started that Friday when Jesus was arrested. And it goes for a whole week and it ended the next Sabbath. So after the next Sabbath, that's the end of the Passover. And so then that Sunday, all the Jews are returning. All the pilgrims are returning back to their homes, to Galilee, to wherever they're from. And they would travel together as a large group. It was just safer back then to do that. But the disciples, it says, are still hiding. They're still in that upper room with the locked door. They're still afraid of being identified. They don't want to travel in a large group of people. And so they're still there. Thomas missed the first 
time, the first vision, and when the disciples told him, hey, we saw Jesus, he's, he says, I don't believe unless I touch him. Now, what's he saying? He's not saying that he doesn't believe they saw Jesus. Jews believed in visions and in spirits and ghosts, but they didn't believe that, you, that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, that was, and that he could appear and disappear at will. That was, that was something that's, that's a bit of a stretch. And so Thomas says, no, I don't believe it. Unless I touch him, I will not believe that he is physically resurrected and that he can do, you know, appear and disappear and whatnot. That's too crazy to believe. Well, Jesus appears to them again, this time with Thomas, and he says, hey, Thomas, touch me. And Thomas doesn't even need to touch him. He, he bows down and says, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says, man, blessed are those who don't need to have this experience to believe in me. And then he disappears again, but he says, guys, meet me in Galilee, right? Even, and so finally, they eventually travel to Galilee, probably sneak their way back. And then they're just kind of hanging out, waiting to see Jesus. Where is Jesus? They don't know what to do. They're kind of, kind of like uh, lost. And so finally, Peter says, guys, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go fish. Some of you guys would do the same thing. I'm going to go fish. And so they go, they fish at night. Him and six other disciples, in the morning they come in, they meet Jesus. They cook some breakfast. And probably at that point, Jesus tells them then that he's going to meet them at the next spot, which is on a certain mountain in Galilee. So he meets them. Easter is that first morning, Easter day. But after that, then you have the second day, which would be a week later. And then the third meeting, which was, we talked about last week when he met them on the Sea of Galilee. And now he says, we're going to gather together at a pre-planned place in Galilee, and that would be the fourth meeting, and that's where our passage picks up today, Matthew 28, verse 16. The fourth meeting of the disciples with Jesus. Now, let me say something quickly here as you turn there. It's important to remember that both Mark and Matthew are writing discipleship manuals for churches based around the life of Christ. So what they're writing is true, it's historically accurate, but they were not, their goal was not to write a, an extensive historical chronology of Jesus' life. That's more along Luke's goal. Uh, but from Mark and Matthew, their goal is to teach these new Christians how to follow Jesus, how to be his disciples. And so they do that by recording stories from his life to teach the, these new disciples how to live. And so it's important to remember that because their goal is not to give an extensive account of all the resurrection appearances. I think sometimes people get tripped up on that, but that was not their goal. And here's the reason. Christians already knew them. Christians already knew the resurrection appearances. And we know that because we see a very early creed in 1 Corinthians. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians probably around 53 AD, and he includes this very, very early creed. Verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, what, I, what was given to me, I passed on to you as of first importance. Whatever you believe, this is, number, this is the most important. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and it's probably at the, his, in Jerusalem there in his last appearance. And then he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now this, the interesting thing about this is Paul says, I, I pass this on to you. What I receive, I pass this on to you as of first importance. When did Paul pass it on? Well, we know the interesting thing is that we know when he did that because Luke records when Paul planted the church in Corinth. And he, re- he records that and he actually lists the, the guy who was the governor, the Roman governor of Corinth at that time. And that guy was only a governor for one year, 51 A.D., So we know conclusively that Paul planted the church in Corinth in 51 AD, which means that this creed, this is a creed that Paul received even before that, and then he passed on to them in 51 AD, was widespread within 20 years. This is something that all Christians would have been taught. So they knew the resurrection appearances. They they, They don't necessarily need a whole, have it rehashed again. Now, Luke will do it again because he's more of a historian, but not Matthew and Mark. Christians already knew them. So when Mark or Matthew includes a resurrection appearance, it's very important because they're teaching us something about discipleship. They're not doing it just for the historical value. Christians already knew them, but they're doing it to teach us something about being a disciple of Jesus. And so keep that in mind as we study our passage today. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We'll pause there. So eleven disciples, they're told by Jesus. Remember, Judas betrayed Jesus and then hung himself, so he's not included. Eleven disciples are told by Jesus to go to this certain place. And so they go, and when they see him, it says they worship. They bowed down to him. But then it says some doubted. What does that mean? Who doubted? Who are these people? The disciples? Were they worshiping and doubting at the same time? Well, there's an interesting, when it says but, but some, it's, a, it's an interesting Greek construction here. I don't want to be the, uh, the uh, boring Greek teacher here. But the, it, the construction is important, important because it's, it's hoi day. Hoi would mean some or others. It refers to a group of people. Day means but. And so it's saying some people did this, but some people did this. And whenever it's used that way, it's used in contrast. It's contrasting two different groups. So it's saying the disciples worshipped, and probably a better translation rather than but some, would but others doubted. So the disciples worshipped him, but others doubted. So who are the others then? Well, I think that this is a very good candidate to be that appearance that Paul talks about where Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. It's a large public area in Galilee. The disciples knew ahead of time that they're meeting Jesus. That's the only, this is the only time that we know of where the disciples knew ahead of time that they're going to see Jesus. And so this would have been an excellent time for them to spread the word, guys, We've heard from Jesus that he's going to meet us at this place, at this time. Come with us. Remember, Jesus had a lot of informal disciples, especially in the Galilee area. 
And so they spread the word. They get as many people to come with them as they can, and they see Jesus, the disciples worship, and these people doubt. But how could they doubt? How do you doubt when you see Jesus? Probably the better translation here of doubt is hesitate. They hesitated. This word that's translated doubt is only used two times in the New Testament. Here and one other time in Matthew 14, 30, where, Matthew, or where Peter walks on water. Remember, Jesus is walking on the water. And all the disciples are freaking out. They think he's a ghost. And Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come to you. You're my rabbi. I'm your disciple. I should be able to do what you do. Tell me to come to you if it's you. And Jesus says, yeah, come on out, Peter. The water's great. And so Peter steps out and he begins walking on water. And then, the, then it says, and then he became afraid. Same word here. Then he became afraid. Probably best translated, then he hesitated. He's not doubting that he's walking on water. He sees himself walking on water. He's doubting. He's hesitating. How is this possible? How can Jesus be walking on water? How can I be walking on water? And then he sinks. He hesitated. And so probably I think that makes the best sense here that these disciples, these kind of informal disciples see Jesus and just like the first 11 disciples, the very first time they see him, they hesitate and they say, how is this possible? We saw him crucified. How is it possible that he's alive? They're hesitating. They're, they're afraid. They're concerned. And keep going here. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them, so he walks up closer, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." So Jesus gives them what we know as the Great Commission. He says all authority in heaven, that's all spiritual authority, and all authority on earth, that's all physical authority, has been given to me. Therefore, as my disciples, as my disciples, because I'm your master and I have all authority that there is to have, as you are going, make disciples of me. There's no one better to make a disciple of than me. And it's important to, re- to re- that go there. And again, I've said this before. I think the NIV probably doesn't have the best translation because it, tra- it translated that go as an imperative. Like, go, right? Like, ready, set, go to China. And they're running down the mountain. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as you are going out, make disciples. Wherever God leads you to go. Some of you, he's going he's gonna to have you minister in Jerusalem. Some of you are going to go to Galilee and Samaria. Some of you are going to go further to Asia, to, to Rome, wherever God takes you, make disciples, and he says, of all ethnic groups, of all nations. And that's important, because I think a lot of times we think of that as political boundaries, and so we say, okay, we got to go to every political country, and that's true, but initially, to, to the original audience here, Jesus' point is that wherever you go, don't just make disciples of Jews, make disciples of everybody. doesn't matter whether they're Jew Gentile, Greek, barbarian, whoever they are, all ethnic groups are candidates to become my disciples. Make disciples of everyone. Baptizing them, that stands for conversion, bringing them to faith, and then teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Teaching them how to follow me. And I am with you always to the end of the age till I return. 
Now, a couple, two quick applications for us from this. And I realize that many of you have heard this passage preached so many times, so I try to, try to make it fresh here. Think of two different applications. One is this, how do we deal with doubt? How do we deal with doubts? And biblically, I think there's two kinds of doubt that I see. The first kind of doubt is just pure unbelief. And you see that a lot in, in John's gospel. Just pure unbelief, where they do not believe. I'm doubting because I don't believe. You're telling me something, I'm like, no, I, I don't think so. I doubt it. I don't believe. I don't see that this is true. And so in that case, we want to help that person believe by helping them to see that it's true. And so we, we present evidence for them. We pray for them. We ask God to open their eyes. If you're in that camp, pray and say, God, if you're real, open my eyes. Help me to see that this is true. That's the first kind of doubt, unbelief. But there's a second kind, which we just saw in this passage, and that is hesitation. A hesitation is where you see, but it's hard to accept. You see it, but it's hard to accept it. It's hard to embrace it. You see it, and it's in front of you. You see Jesus, but you're like, how can this be possible? I have all these other questions that are unanswered, and this doesn't make any sense. I see it, but how can this be true? So Peter walking on water, he sees it, but he's, he's hesitating. How is this possible? When Jesus appeared to people, they see him, but they say, how is this possible? An application for us, maybe, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist saw Jesus' glory earlier than almost anyone else. He was an early adapter. He was on the cutting edge, you could say. And yet, when John the Baptist gets arrested and thrown in prison, he begins to doubt. He begins to hesitate and waver. Why? Because Jesus, he began to develop questions that were unanswered. And he, he begins to think, because he thought Jesus was going to be a political savior who's going to deliver him from Rome and, and kick out all the Herods and all the bad people. And so John's sitting there for a day, a week, a month, a year. And he begins to think, if Jesus is the Messiah, why, why is this happening? How is this possible? And he begins to hesitate. How, Jesus? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and, and he says, ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect somebody else? And what does Jesus say? Tell John what you see and hear. Tell him that the blind are given sight, that the lame are healed and they walk, that the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is he who doesn't, doesn't lose faith because of me. That's a good one, I think, for us to remember. It is possible to see Jesus' glory, to see the truth, and yet to hesitate at times. When we're going through hard times and to say, Okay, I, I see this, but yet, how is this possible? If Jesus is Lord, how, why am I going through these circumstances? And you have all these other questions. You have that tough professor in university. And you're thinking, how is this possible? If evolution is true, how is this true? And my encouragement to you would be, yeah, research those questions, but don't forget what you see. Embrace what you see. We can have unanswered questions and still know the truth. And that's what Jesus says to these guys. He comes to them. He shows them himself, but he doesn't pander him. He says, now go make disciples. You've seen the truth. I'm not going to answer all your questions. John the Baptist, I'm not going to explain to you why you're in jail right now and how that's a part of God's plan. I'm not. I'm just going to tell you, accept what you see. That's the first application. Two kinds of doubts. And if you're hesitating, embrace what you see. 
Second, keep the main thing the main thing. Make disciples. That is the main thing. Our ultimate goal, of course, is to worship and enjoy God forever. That's what we're we're going toward. That's the whole mission of the Bible. We're getting there where we're just going to worship God. We're not going to be necessarily playing harps unless you're into that kind of thing, but we're just going to be enjoying God's glory and praising Him and just having a, a blast. That is the goal, but the mission statement for getting there is to make disciples. It's to make disciples. If you're in business, the goal is to make money, but the mission for getting there is to sell stuff. And here, the mission for getting to where we enjoy God's glory forever is to make disciples. It's not necessarily to build a new playground or to add on to our building or to do an awesome VBS. Those things are great, but they are just a means to an end of making disciples. That is our goal. So how do we do it? Well, wherever you go, wherever God takes you, keep that as your life mission. If God takes you, if he keeps you here for your whole life, if he takes you to Texas to work for Toyota, if he takes you to Kauai, if he takes you to India, wherever God takes you, keep the main thing the main thing. You are called to make disciples through evangelism, through drawing people into the faith, and then through discipleship, through teaching, through living a life as an example of what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray.